I'm Siobhan McClay, she, her. And I'm Jen Jackson, she, her. And this is Embodiment for the Rest of Us, a podcast series exploring topics within intersections that exist in fat liberation. In this show, we interview professionals and those with lived experience alike to learn how they are affecting radical change and how we can all make this world a safer place for those living in larger bodies and in marginalized spaces. Captions and content warnings are provided in the show notes for each episode, including specific timestamps, so that you can skip triggering content anytime that feels supportive to you. This podcast is a representation of our co-hosts and guest experiences and may not be reflective of yours. These conversations are not medical advice and are not a substitute for mental health or nutrition support. In addition, the conversations held here are not exhaustive in scope or breadth. These topics, these perspectives are not complete and are always in process. These are just the highlights. Just like posts on social media or any other podcast, this is just a glimpse. We are always interested in any feedback on this process if something needs to be addressed. You can email us at listener, L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R, at embodimentfortherestofus.com. And now for today's episode. Hello, and welcome to episode five of season one of the Embodiment for the Rest of This podcast. In today's episode, we interviewed the incredible Nicola Haggett, she, her, about her embodiment journey. Nicola is a professionally trained, experienced, and compassionately curious coach, certified body trust provider, intuitive eating facilitator, and open heart project meditation instructor. She describes herself as fat, a word she has reclaimed as a neutral descriptor for her body, and her lived experience as a fat person is an important part of what she brings to her work. Nicola believes that it's possible to nourish, care for, and build trust with your body, despite living in a culture that tells you that you need to shrink to fit in. She sees clients online from her home in East London, where she lives with her husband, Ricky, and their two kids. You can find her at nicolahaggett.com double G, double T, or follow her on Instagram at Nicola Haggett. We are thrilled to have you join us in this conversation. Today's episode is coming to you with all its wiggles right now. Hi there. We are absolutely delighted to have an incredible human being with us today on the podcast. We can't wait to be in this conversation and also share it with you. Today we have Nikki with us from London. Hi, Nikki. Hey, Jen. Hey, Siobhan. Hi. He is someone I'm really we... excited to be here. Yay! Yay! <laughs> I got excited and already kept going. So Nikki is someone we both feel blows our mind on a constant basis. I've listened to all your podcasts, Nikki. All of them. Mm-hmm. Me too. <laughs> um, and I just know that there's going to be so many heartstring tugging moments and minutes coming your way today in this podcast that we get to share in and share with others. So Nikki. How are you doing today? Uh, yeah, I'm good. I'm got that nice, excited energy. Looking forward to chatting to you both. Yeah, embodiment's one of my favorite topics. Um, yeah, it's evening here in London, so I'm feeling nice and relaxed towards the end of my day. Oh, oh that's great. I'm so glad. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that because I have nervous energy, the sweating that Siobhan and I always talk about, and I Every felt time. some cent- yeah, I felt some centering as you said. 
mm -hmm. you're feeling relaxed in your evening. So I'm going to join you there. Yeah, you should. I'm going to try for <laughs> sure. Yeah, I'm going to try. Yeah. <laughs> um, Come on we, over. Yeah, oh, I like it. Let's do that. Um, as we start to dive in, we'd love to start with asking a grounding question about these themes of our podcast and how they sit in our bodies. Can you share with us what embodiment means to you? Um, and what was your embodiment journey like, if you'd like to share? Yeah, you know, I think about this a lot. Because I think embodiment is one of those concepts that can feel a little bit heavy, ironically. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think when I think of embodiment, I think of it as a continuum. You know, like we're always embodied in some way. Um, but when I think of positive embodiment for me, or just embodiment in general, it's it's living from and with my body. It's that non-dualistic place of like not even like separating like mind in the body and, and, and how I talk about it so it's living from and with this body in the present moment and being open to what's there sometimes that's you know disrupted by the culture and environment around me or situation sometimes I'm in spaces where that's enhanced um so yeah it's really like how am I open to and what's my capacity to be present with that and live from there in this moment and what's my embodiment journey? I think I'm still very much at the beginning of that journey. <laughs> I think I'm going to be on it for the rest of my life. Um, I guess I first became aware of embodiment even as a concept through my own grappling with what didn't work for me or what wasn't helping me um, in feeling at home in my body. So like, all the ways in which body image work didn't feel supportive to me. All the ways in which um, it seemed to further objectify my body or further kind of locate like my body as the problem <laughs> that I just had to kind of focus on loving it a, lot, a bit more and that, you know, that it felt that didn't work. Um, and so through that, I started to explore other ideas other concepts and I'm going to be honest when I first came across embodiment it didn't feel like it was for me which is why I love the title of your podcast mm. <laughs> it didn't feel like it was for me it felt like it was you know um and no disrespect to bendy yoga types but it felt like mm -hmm. it was for bendy yoga types that didn't look like me um mm. and then through my body trust training with Be Nourished in Portland Oregon um I'd already come across Dr. Neil Pran's work um, on the developmental theory of embodiment and that's included as part of our body trust training and so that's when I first started exploring um, other ways of connecting to my body that didn't require me to fix something first or didn't require me to um, kind of fake it till I make it. It felt like there was an opportunity for me to increase my capacity to be present with what is to sort of relate to my body differently in a way that I could name the wisdom in the ways in which I've tried to cope, the ways in which my body has showed up for me, has tried to make its well-known ways in which it made sense for me to disconnect. So my body journey, if you like, kind of started from that place of exploring my own lived experiences in, in my body 
and making sense of that and then figuring out like how I want to practice something different how can I practice connecting and where do I have choice um in how I want to be intentional about embodiment yeah and I'm still learning so much you know from there um you know I'm really influenced by um Christine Caldwell's work really influenced by Strozzi Institute somatics I am not an expert in inverted commas I always use that word <laughs> um <laughs> in any of this I feel like it's like this is like something I'm journeying with and practicing with but yeah that's that kind of gives you some context as to where I'm mm. at. Mm. Thank you for that. Um, mm-hmm. I was sitting, um, so Nikki, you and I met at a body image workshop. So I was actually sitting with that. We were sitting next to each other at a body image workshop. So I was sitting with that. Um, both how new that was to me to even consider it as a body image concept, like even that phrase, and also the language in that workshop and what um, you and I shared out loud in that workshop made me feel very connected to you because it often had this feeling of beyond, like in this workshop and also beyond, like what's beyond this, what's beyond um, what applies to uh, privileged, white, thin, heterosexual bodies, cisgendered bodies, like just thinking about like what's beyond was so present in that room. There were a lot of people saying things like that. And I got to sit next to you and we got to chat in between and these other things. And I was just kind of sitting with that. Like at that time, something that occurred to me is that body image is a process as well. So it's more like body imaging, like it's an active thing. And just now, as I was hearing you talk, I was thinking, yeah, an embodiment is like the moments of that and being connected to that. And also, body image or imaging, whichever one I choose, has never felt like it was for me. Mm. And what, like when you were talking, embodiment also did not feel like it was for me from the beginning. So I am neurodivergent. I have ADHD and a lot of body image and embodiment conversations require interoception, sensing our internal signals and proprioception, um, sensing what's outside of us, two things in which are not easy for me. And so it felt like I don't have access to being able to do this. Like how close can I get? What are my words? Um, so part of embodiment and for the rest of us is what if embodiment is also accessible to me and in which ways and how to look at it differently. Like you said, I was just really hearing all of that and what you said, it was just really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I totally forgot that that's how we met. And, and, and you're right. Um, something that really stood out for me from that workshop, you know, I, I got so much out of that workshop. It was it was yes. really, really met me where at that moment. And also what stood out for me was those moments where we could share our stories as the mm. two only fat folks yes. <laughs> in that workshop. Um, that piece where we could name what gets in the way, you know? And so I think for me, when I'm speaking of embodiment, it's that piece of like, what have my lived experiences been and how can I situate myself in the wisdom of that? You know, like right from being a little kid, the ways in which um, I went from being at one to then mm. learning that my version of embodiment, the way that my embodiment showed up for me wasn't okay or it wasn't allowed or it was too much. Or, you know, you know, I've talked briefly to you, Jen, about navigating recent diagnosis of ADHD as well. So we have that in common in the ways in which, you know, I think about embodiment 
for the rest of us and I think about like how how we privilege certain forms of embodiment and then so how that then doesn't leave space in, in our stories for what our experiences have been so yeah really situating ourselves in our story and our lived experience I think is is a really big piece of this for me mm-hmm. the word that keeps coming to mind um, in your definition or your explanation of embodiment is accessibility so I think you know when you said that embodiment just seems like a con- in the past seemed like a concept for bindi yoga types right um I think that in, in order to really dig into embodiment and work on one's own embodiment I'll speak for myself there has to be a level of accessibility and I think that's that's one of the reasons I was so interested in doing this podcast with Jen and also so excited to talk to you to learn from you is because I in everything I've read from you about you um, there's a lot of discussion of creating this aspect of accessibility around embodiment Um, and it makes me think you know yeah it's often the idea is kind of kind of lofty for a lot of people, but I love kind of bringing it down to a, a level where everyone can ex- access it. So I'm just, that's really sitting with me. So thank you for explaining it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's something I'm still feeling my way into, you know, mm-hmm. like, like where embodiment is our birthright, like being mm-hmm. fully embodied mm-hmm. and how often our level of access to positive embodiment is not it's not the same for yeah. all of us in all contexts mm-hmm. and so how can we like hold that and then also how can we introduce some element of choice for ourselves um like what are the practices that help us to do that mm-hmm. um yeah uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> i'm just really sitting with that in my body actually that was Me my noises <laughs> yeah me too me too so I've given birth to two kiddos and in one of podcasts that I was listening to you talked about medical fat phobia that you experienced during your pregnancies do you feel comfortable discussing that and how did it affect your journey of embodiment furthermore how do you feel medical fat phobia impacts embodiment yeah yeah thank you for checking if I feel comfortable um I do um Wow, <laughs> there's so much in there. I think, like, in a lot of ways, like, that was one of the biggest ruptures I had in terms of my own sense of safeness and feeling at home in my body was that experience. So it's been super interesting me to look at it. At the time, I didn't have language to put to my experience. I guess I want to say that. You know, I had both pregnancies that I had. Um, I was in a morbidly O-word mm-hmm. body mm-hmm. and I didn't have language for stigma. I didn't have language for trauma even at that time. So it's really only been looking back that I've been able to think, wow, you know, like maternity care represents one of our longest exposures to you know, medical anti-fatness um, mm-hmm. for many folks, you know, mm-hmm. but but we don't really talk about it much or you know name like the impact of that and for me certainly it was all these different factors of being labeled high risk from the beginning and then what did that mean for the number of different interactions I had what did that mean for my risk of 
experiencing more microaggressions and, frankly, outward experiences of anti-fatness. Mm-hmm. And when I think of it in the context of embodiment, it really came across all of the areas I think about when I think of positive experiences of embodiment. It really cuts across that for me. Like it really positioned my body as the problem. Like mm. right from the outset. Mm-hmm. And it also situated my body as as a site that wasn't safe for me or for my babies. Mm. So mm-hmm. like that piece of agency was really ruptured. You know, you don't have a choice. These are the options we're going to put to you now. You don't there's different rules for you now. We you know, you don't get to care in an attuned way for your body. You know, I was put on diets um, mm. in the first pregnancy. Um, that sense of positive embodiment that I actually had at the beginning of my pregnancy when I really had this moment of feeling, oh, I can really like, you know, like even when I think about like rubbing my tummy and like feeling that connection to mm. my kiddo in there, that at the beginning, that sense that here was my body was actually working for me you know yeah. um that that was there was a wrong way for that to happen that there was a wrong way to be you know that that, that fat pregnancy is somehow not normal or that shouldn't happen mm-hmm. or yes and just when I think about it like all the ways in which being reduced to a BMI objectifies you and all the ways in which the pathologizing and the medicalization and the interventions and the the naming of risk, just kind of all of it layers on to really interrupt the possibility of feeling safe, of feeling grounded, of feeling centred and connected. And it was, you know, it was only when I was working with a therapist years later, because it wasn't offered to me at the time, and we, you know, really started to name it as a trauma response, you know, in my experiences as being trauma that I started to kind of be able to make sense of it. But yeah, it's it's definitely been a really defining experience of what is not in positive embodiment for me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really powerful. Um yeah, listening to you talk about it in another podcast and even just now it just feels really powerful. I I absolutely had the same experience in that just the idea of being pregnant at the size that I was, was already a affront to the medical establishment that I was going to mm-hmm. and additional tests, additional appointments when my body was doing exactly what it needed to do. And I hadn't even thought of it being like the longest term of medical involvement in my life. Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't gone to the doctor for years before that because of medical fat phobia and not wanting to expose myself to that. But then I had to, because I had this, you know, these tiny humans growing inside of me, that, that was just the expectation. Um, but it just feels really, I think it is a really big defining moment for birth givers. Um, the way that you are exposed to the medical industrial complex, no matter what your size, but especially if you're living in a fat body and trying to bring this, new person into the world. I, one thing you said about when you felt this, felt this, you know, this baby inside of you, I had that same experience, um, feeling him, I have two boys. Um, so bug was the, the, the first one feeling him inside of me and feeling like I was doing something wrong by even letting him exist inside my body. 
the size that I was. It was it's it was really interesting. It was a really painful experience back then. Um, so just thank you so much for speaking to that. It feels really validating to hear it wasn't just me. I'm sorry it happened to you clearly, but it's also really validating to hear it wasn't just me who experienced that. Yeah, and I think it's one of those, you know, obviously not everyone um, has a negative experience of, of that pregnancy. Yeah, but I think yeah. from what I've read and from talking to other folks, it's, it really is like, all too common. And I think there's there's this kind of paradox, I don't know if paradox is the right word, of it sometimes elements of it being positive, elements mm-hmm. of it being for the first time, I'm, you know, really allowing myself to, to rest, perhaps, mm. or, you know, I can really, like, have this different relationship with my tummy or mm-hmm. um, my shape. But then, on the other hand, it's kind of been just interrupted and disrupted by, yeah, like you named it, the medical industrial complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, I was... thought of... Go ahead. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> No, 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 go ahead, go ahead, go, go, go. <laughs> I apologize. It's jumping over each other with excitement. That's the thinking phrase. Mm-hmm. I say that all the yeah. time to Shabbat. Um, she does. Yeah. So I have not given birth to any children from this body. Um, my sister has, someone I'm super close to, and so all I can say is really like observational and also being in a room with someone else who was experiencing medical fat phobia while being a fat person also in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, But in that experience, two things really stuck out that I think you both um, touched on that feel related. And the first one is you were talking, Nikki, about agency and autonomy was also coming to mind, like how we're allowed or not allowed to navigate a system that's supposed to be the same for each of us. Um, And what choices are we actually allowed? Like the word that was coming, the phrase that was coming to mind was that's not trauma sensitive, right? Which most of the medical establishment is not trained in being trauma sensitive at the very least, much less other levels of that. Um, when you said giving the, like, here are your options, not the options, but here are the options we've selected for you that you can choose from. Uh, not because of human limits of the people on the other side of that, but because they will not be offered to you is really how I heard that. Um, and it was really just making me think about the word antiquated, how antiquated our systems are that we have to rely on really what feel like old fashioned, inappropriate, misogynistic, um, oppressive notions, um, that we should all meet, be at the median, you know, uh, the BMI, we talk about the racist history of that and why it doesn't really apply to people. It's because this researcher was like, you know what? Whoever's in this one middle spot, that's the ideal for no other mm-hmm. reason other than it's in the very center of a bell curve. That's it. That's mm-hmm. the only logic. Um, I was thinking about that as you were talking that uh, and it was reminding me of the phrase geriatric pregnancy. Oh, I did that. <laughs> so my, that was my sister's category as well. And it's this, the data. Now, I, I always get this number wrong. It's either the 18th century, which is the 1700s or the 1800s. I know it's the number 18. So I'll put the link in the show notes for this episode because I cannot remember right now, but it's based on data when we had, we were like at two thirds of this lifespan and even half of this lifespan was the period of time of this data. And so geriatric at that time meant that your risk of death was extremely high, a risk Mm -hmm. that still exists in black and indigenous and people of color um, populations because of the way they're treated. Mm -hmm. Um, but not for white people anymore. Um, Now, if we add fatness into that, yes, because of the way they're treated, like we're talking about right now. 
So as I was thinking about that and kind of letting that swim in my head, I was really thinking, again, how antiquated this is. The data isn't anywhere near now. And in fact, if you use data from now, it's an irrelevant conversation. Um, they don't factor in um, the harm that's done by weight stigma by doctors and other people that are giving us our version or their version of access to this care. Um, and how when we keep things old fashioned, antiquated, misogynistic, patriarchal, that we lose agency and autonomy. Yeah. It's making me think of people in disabled bodies as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, like that when they get on a plane, it's possible for the airline to destroy their wheelchair and they end up mm. on the other side without what they need to do the basic activities of living. Yeah. Um, and that that's really what I'm hearing in this conversation, in this look at a time, as you both said, that has so much exposure to us by the medical industrial complex, mm -hmm. that it would also be so full of stigma, shame, lack of choice, um, and therefore, as I say all these things out loud, like not allowing fat people who are pregnant to be a person is like what yeah. I'm really sitting with right now. It mm -hmm. gave me like bad chills to say that out loud, actually. Um, so, yeah, I just thank you for letting me be a witness to this, something I don't have personal experience with. Um, I have a bit of a knot in my stomach just thinking about... Um, how prevalent this must be and how I'd like to really sit with that more because that really made it have a different impact to me that it's something that's so much time mm -hmm. seemingly yeah. without choice yeah absolutely. yeah and I think like thank you for um naming that piece of agency and autonomy and mm -hmm. and I think it's what I really like about um, the developmental theory of embodiment, so that's Dr. Nita Paran's research, and why it's, for me, been a more helpful for the clients I work with framework than body image, which also, mm. you know, not to say that's not helpful, but it includes within it this piece of agency, and not just agency in terms of our voice and, and feeling like what we've got to say is what matters and counts, but also agency in terms of the world that we meet when we leave our film tour. Like, do you, you mm -hmm. know, like this piece of like, um, what it's like to navigate this world and how our experience of embodiment is either enhanced or disrupted by like the agency we have from a functional perspective. You know, when we greet that world, you know, I'm just in small and in big ways, you know, like you said, like when I go out into spaces, are they designed with me in mind? Are they designed with all bodies in mind? Like, in what ways do you, does it make sense for us to have to disconnect in different environments in order to navigate them? You know, like even just recently when I was I was over in in Ireland visiting my family, um, just being reminded, um, and any fat person will be aware of this, but it's been a while since I've been out in the world in this mm. way. So mm -hmm. just all that stuff and navigating the airplane and the seats and all the ways in which I'm kind of preparing myself for that interaction and then bringing myself back down again afterwards. And then we stayed in an Airbnb just for safety, like to kind of um, minimize contact. And just in there, the shower was one of those split shower doors, you know, where you can mm. like open half of it. And mm -hmm. I couldn't get my body in without having to like physically hurt myself to get into the shower. And then like getting the bath towel that like literally covers like, 
one half of me. And, and I'm laughing, but it, and the, the chairs had just been reminded of that again. Like, you know, like this is not designed with me in mind. And I have a lot of body privilege. I know mm-hmm. that. Um, but yeah, I think that's agency and embodiment. That's like, it's really hard to be positively embodied in a world that, you know, tells us so, so often that there's no space for us to hear that we're not okay here, that we don't belong here. So I just wanted mm-hmm. to name that piece of it. Like, yeah. I think that's why this idea of accessibility and what's embodiment for the rest of us is so important because so many of the constructs we come across um, don't include these pieces of safety and agency and trauma and stigma within them. They have to be kind of bolted on or you know adapted it's not kind of situated in the from the outset so that's something that always sits with me like that's a big piece when you talked about the norm like a lot of body image a lot of intuitive eating work a lot of non-diet work has this norm and then the rest of us are outside of that Mm -hmm. rather than being included right from the beginning Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely that leads me to our next question with Thinking about the rest of us, what does the rest of us mean to you? And furthermore, how do you feel you are part of the rest of us? And because we always want to name it within our podcast, what are your privileges? Yeah, yeah. I think for me, like the rest of us is anyone that's outside, you know, the kind of mythical norm Mm. um, of, you know, thin, white, cis, het men able-bodied and 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 so mm-hmm. really it's it's kind of everyone that that is adjacent to or moving away from that um that norm that's the rest of us for, for me and when I think of myself and my positionality within that you know as a white cis het woman who's financially secure um you know, educated, you know, those are my privileges um, when I locate myself within that. And then when I think of where I am in the rest of us, you know, I'm naming my fatness. And even within that privilege as a mid to large fat woman, um, I'm also, you know, living with chronic illness um, and a new, newly navigating um, ADHD diagnosis, which I'm still trying to sort of integrate and sit with but when I think of those three aspects and, and, and how that complicates my access to embodiment that's I guess that's where I fit with the rest of us thank you mm-hmm. for sharing that with us mm-hmm. and it's um thinking about the rest of us and also something that you said earlier um which is uh, I'm curious if you have a daily embodiment or even a pleasure practice. Sometimes it can have both names or one or the other. Um, and also in thinking, just in answering that, I'm curious if it feels like a word like resilient, the context in which this usually comes, which is like a practice so that you are resilient. I'm wondering how the word resilient um, describes what you might get out of a practice if you have one. Um or is it a word we should be considering carefully or more carefully? Hmm, such a good question. Um, so to answer the first bit, um, I do have daily embodiment practices, um, and those change um, all the time. So I think I have 
at the moment a daily practice of centering myself into I guess my own embodied experience of moments of aliveness and connection so really starting my day by centering into like a particular moment or memory when I felt really connected and alive and living out my purpose and really grinding into the felt sensation of that in my body and I have a phrase that goes with it which is my body my home and that's something that I really sink into and connecting to that shape of that in my body as a play of resourcing or resilience and so yeah we can talk about that word for sure but for me it's a place to ground it to center into um just so I can practice number one um grinding into that place rather than those moments when we wake up and everything feels off or I feel like I'm in a shame spiral or something's going on it gives me not a way to override that but it gives them a different place to move from um and also just the more I connect to that experience and that shape, the more I can connect to the moments when I'm activated or taken away from myself. Um, yeah, so at the moment that's a practice I have and then I have other practices or practices, other activities, things that I do that I try and work into my day as much as possible, which I know help me to be with and in my body. And sometimes that's going for a walk. Sometimes it's just sitting out in the back garden and feeling the sun. Um, my friend called that sunflowering, <laughs> like sitting oh, with my head up and just like <laughs> and turning my head towards the sun and feeling it sink into me, like little moments of that. And I, for me, I use the word resilience, but it's a word that I'm newly coming around to. <laughs> um, I think like uh, that word. I think we use whatever words feel supportive to us. I think yes. resilience can feel like assimilation. It can feel yeah. like um, when so much research and um, funding is put into resiliency practices and what makes us more resilient and what helps us kind of bounce back from adversity, if you like. Mm. Um, in there, often it's missing this piece of the adversity being the oppression that we experience or the way in which, you know, the more we put focus on resiliency, it can feel like individual responsibility. It can feel like it's mm. all on me. And it can feel like, like, why do I have to be? You know, it can really take away. So I'm starting to think of what are like resiliency practices that bring me back into connection, that help me stay with joy and openness and curiosity alongside the suffering I have versus where am I in survival strategies and not to make those wrong like those are also places of wisdom and coping but you know kind of naming the distinction between those resiliency to me feels like choice and openness and possibility so how can I expand my capacity for that in the face of what's going on without making myself wrong for the times in which I've had to survive Yes. through other kinds of strategies I don't know if that makes any sense but that's kind of what comes to mind when I think of that that answer blew my mind it made so much sense <laughs> it is I wow oh oh that's good um again the word agency just came to mind again um having this resiliency and how you I got really like well, maybe I'm too blown away because I can't think of what I'm saying but um 
That was really good. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, this was this was reminding me actually of the podcast that we recorded last week, the previous episode, and also a conversation that I've been having with myself for this the entirety of this pandemic, which is the direction in which the language that we use um, leads to who has the responsibility. So just as you were talking, it's mm. like resilient is like mm. asking the person who is affected to do something else, yeah. right? Like they're already dealing with something and now do more. Mm -hmm. um, and if I was to turn it around, um, this is the only word I have thought of so far that fits in this space. Like I've done a lot of writing and reflecting and yet this is all I have so far, which is thrive, which as soon as I said it out loud, reminds me of liberation. In other words, like justice is still within a system or about a system. Um, it's reactionary. Um, thinking about all these public deaths of black and brown people in the last year, particularly black people, which has already been happening, but like really acutely in the pandemic, because we're all at home looking at it at the same time. Mm -hmm. That... We keep talking about justice, 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 but their bodies and the person are no longer with us is when we're talking about justice. Um, and so it makes me want to choose different language, like liberation. Like, what if we're still alive getting something? What if we're thriving? What if we're able to be liberated? Um, what if there isn't um, an affront? I forgot and said that earlier. I love that word. I think it was you, Siobhan. An affront to our agency, autonomy, um, embodiment, um, access like all of these words of things we're trying to do with our power of choice what if there were words that we use that expanded instead of contracted is something that i'm really sitting with so all of this first of all is more than i've ever written to myself so i'm really glad i'm <laughs> saying it out loud um and i get to this place about thrive because we talk about living and surviving a lot when it comes to health at every size when it comes to intuitive eating when mm -hmm. it comes to body trust um, when it comes to even positive embodiment um, especially in its use with eating disorders. There's a lot of live and survive. Mm. And what about thriving is just really something I've been sitting with a lot. And as you were saying, feeling on the beginning of an embodiment journey, I feel like I'm, it's going to go somewhere, but I'm at the beginning. Um, but it feels really important to name that the direction of language is so important, not just language, not just literal logical words, but like mm. the direction where that intention and impact is actually going. What's, where is it pointing? Yeah. Seems really important. Yeah. And I love the word resilient. Yeah. I think it's something we talked about uh, maybe two episodes ago, maybe three. Um, I, I think I agree with you, Nikki, that we use the words that feel most supportive for us. When I hear the word resilient, though, something in me goes, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Because it makes me feel really aware of my privilege. Like I was able to be resilient through certain events because I've had this privilege of having a supportive family, money to pay for therapy, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't even know if thrive is the word for me either, but I love the idea of just being really aware of the directionality of words like that. I don't have a word either. I'm probably gonna have to go write a bit too, but I, I want to go back to your embodiment practice and your pleasure practice. I love that it feels really resilient for you. When you said my body, my home, my whole body just like, whew, it just felt so good and just so comfortable and so loving to say that I, I i can't remember again we we prepared for these interviews and i was listening to i believe it was the needy when they asked what your body is to you he said your body is belonging to you so it just felt really comfortable and really really lovingly self-supportive to think of it that way i love that i really really did 
I'm going to start saying something like that. That's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. And I think like to, it's super interesting um, to link that to what you were saying, Jen, around um, what's something different that's not it just in relation to um, how do we survive in the current systems. Mm-hmm. I think like for me, something I'm playing with and something I'm practicing and exploring is this this piece of not just being with what is but like sitting with what if like um Mm. what if my body was home you know what what might that look like you know and and for me my body my home is my piece but for someone else it might be you know what if there was joy or what if there was peace or and that story's changing all the time, you know? So this piece of, like, what's the new story? What's the new story? And how do we practice our way there? I mean, I love Adrian Lee Brown. I have this quote um, that I keep circling back to, which is, envision the new story, practice it into existence. And so not this kind of magical thinking, fake it till you make it kind of, you know, I'm going to just jump right over to some idea of, you know, um body love if body love doesn't feel like the story that's already wanting to be named within me but like what's that edge and how can I start to be intentional about practicing a way to work something new in some moments you know in some places and I think when we can do that I can it can have this feeling of expansion because there's not just one story anymore there's something else alongside it so I love that like how can like how can we practice Something different, it's not within reference to the old mm. story or the existing systems. Like, and I know that can be a really hard place to access for, like, for a lot of folks, but I feel like it's a place that I'm really learning from, um, at the moment in other collective liberation spaces and learning from black feminists who are doing that work and learning from futurism, you know, like, like where can we radically reimagine something? Not because we're kind of expecting that to exist right here in this moment, but how can like the imagining of that open up the possibility for something different that we can start to practice our way towards now? So, yeah, I think that's the piece I'm playing with. Mm, like, how can we create space for the what if and what isn't yet? Yeah, because um. Like the what it wants to emerge, you know, the what if that kind of part of us has already experienced. So for me, my body, my home, often the people I work with, and I, I don't know if this is true for either of you, like they can't imagine something different. They kind of know that mm, mm-hmm. I can't keep being here, but I don't know what something different looks like, you know, yeah. like, like I don't know what's possible. We don't have enough models of possibility of what it looks like to thrive in a fat body. We don't have enough models of what it looks like to thrive in a fat, queer, disabled body or, you know, fat, black, queer, disabled bodies and, and, and. You know, we don't have many of those models. So in a way, we kind of have to join with other people who are the rest of us who are doing that imagining as well and share our stories. And from that, you know, what we can hear the truth of a what if for us. I don't know if I'm making any sense here, but for me, certainly, like the collective piece, when we're in collective reimagining, 
I think that that's where there's a lot of, of healing that can happen. That's where we can do a lot of moving towards something different together mm-hmm. rather than when we're on our own, just working with our own story and our own experience. Yeah. It feels really expansive to think of it that way. Really um, joyful, joyfully expansive is what keeps coming to mind. Just like, oh, just the, the model of possibility. That's that's really powerful. Mm. Oh, I love that, Siobhan. And um, listening to both of you, I love this conversation that it gets to be between three of us. There's always like something I get from each of the other people. I'm like, yeah. oh, wait, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was hearing like almost a what if about the the collective level, which is like, what if the possibilities lie within being witnessed in a collective, mm. heard, held, witnessed, um, that allows for agency and autonomy? Like it feels like I have to add all these caveats to that. So I've made a complicated okay. what if, but it, it's I'm already like imagining it. I already feel held in a collective that I am not yet in. Mm. Um, that that would be a place where there would be some genuine listening and noticing because of the relatedness in those spaces of a collective. Um, and that's making me feel very hopeful. Mm-hmm. Hopefully expansive. Yeah. They're all Ooh, <laughs> the I same like it. Phrase. I like that better than joyfully. <laughs> that's good. I like that. <laughs> it also was reminding me of loss, body mm. grief, mm. and how processing what is not possible and processing what is not for us creates a space. And this is one of the first times I've heard something I would like to go in the space that's created because it can be filled very quickly with things that don't really serve us. It's that that's like an almost immediate reaction in ourselves. Um, but to have the practice of clearing that space, dealing with the loss and grief, and also a collective imagining of what could be feels like that space could be filled with expansion. It can feel so contracting. I was just like mm. feeling that in my person, that there could be a space that doesn't even have to contract perhaps with enough practice. Although I think that some of my privileges talking that it feels like I would never contract again. So I think I'm going to retract mm. that part, but um, yeah, just really sitting with um, not just, places where my body can be supported, but also who I am to be supported in that. Like my inner workings as well mm. is feeling really present right now. Yeah, I think like embodiment's not just about um, those positive, joyful experiences. It's also mm. like being able to be with and increase our capacity to be with. Mm-hmm. As much as we, you know, what is it supportive? Like the discomfort and and the grief. And I think, like, thank you for naming that. I think that grief is such a huge part of my story and and the work that I do. And it's it's a big part of body trust work. And really, it's it's kind of muddying the story and thickening the story so that there there's there's the grief and making space for it and there's what else is possible alongside that. And mm. I don't think personally that we move through the grief or that the grief goes away. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, it can still come up with the same intensity. Mm-hmm. And when we, when we don't name that, um, I think that people can feel like they're doing it wrong. Or they haven't, oh, I thought it was past this. You know, I've definitely had that. But I do mm-hmm. think that the periods of which we experience it can become much shorter and they can become interspersed with 
other different experiences. But mm. yeah, but something that stood out to me as you were talking is this piece of community. Like finding communities where it's possible for us to center different elements of the rest of us, you know, so that we have those spaces where we haven't got as much disruption or we don't have to perform versions of ourselves or we don't have to disconnect or be hypervigilant just mm. to to be there when we have those spaces where we can just de-armor and center yeah. into like what's here then I think that that is a big part of that what if because we get a moment of that what if mm-hmm. like a micro moment of it in certain spaces you know like and I think that's why like like for me in my rest of us finding spaces that are fat explicit has been yeah. a really healing journey for me because in those places like I can just feel my whole body like exhale yes and I think oh like what if what if I could just I could feel I don't know joyful and um sexy and Mm -hmm. capable in my body like all the time and I mean that that's not always available but it's like Mm -hmm. where there's places where my what if is already true Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense if the what oh, if already yeah. is true in some small place and then that helps me to kind of I don't know like have more choice I keep coming back to choice have more choice in agency mm-hmm. in those moments when I'm taken away I have mm-hmm. this evidence I have this story I have this felt experience that was different that mm-hmm. I can kind of connect into Oh, I don't know if any of that made any sense. <laughs> oh, that made so much sense. And it was so lovely. <laughs> um, no, that was lovely. And it, and one thing that you were saying that really stuck out to me about taking this body armor up, de-armoring, I feel like that goes back to the definition of the rest of us. If we feel like we have to wear this armor just to exist in the world, I believe that makes us part of the rest of us. Because I think people who aren't othered in some way don't even have that experience, don't even understand what that could even mean. So that's a, that's a, I, I feel like we'll be defining embodiment and the rest of us forever. I think it'll keep expanding and constricting in ways that it needs to. But just thinking about the fact of de-armoring makes me even think of that's what the rest of us means. People who feel they can't de-armor in a lot of fears. Yeah. Yeah, and that makes me think of the pandemic and why it was such an experience. It was like we had this experience of other people suddenly having their sense of agency and safety and, um, like, like feeling that kind of disruption that many, you know, marginalized folks are experiencing Mm. all the time already. And suddenly we talked about this a great, it wasn't, it was just suddenly that more people suddenly had an experience of like not having that sense of safety like that you know sense of safety or agency that maybe was more available to them mm-hmm. suddenly being like oh like I'm, I'm walking out in the world and I'm having to be hypervigilant or oh I'm not sure if this is safe to me and they were getting like a little bit of a sense of that um yeah which so many people were already living with mm-hmm. already to like varying degrees Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. also making me think of where we are in the pandemic right now but there's in the uk and in the united states we have a level of privilege of having access to vaccines Mm -hmm. of having um 
lockdowns and these other things and thinking about other areas of the world that still don't have those things or they don't work because of what's required of them in their lives to continue mm. to be able to survive, that they have to be unsafe mm. anyway. It's not their personal choice. And just thinking about, uh, as you were talking, Nikki, I was just getting, thinking about people who are homebound for one reason or another, chronic illness, disability, that were already experiencing this before the pandemic. Um, and then when there were things like lockdowns, stay at home orders, whatever they were phrased, wherever we are, um, that people had to access the same services that those people have been trying to access this whole time, like grocery delivery. Mm. Um, and they were now competing with people who already struggle with this because everyone mm. needs the same services and it took a while mm. for them to expand. Um, and I don't think, and, and as lockdown has eased, some of those services have gone away, like following a same sort of rhythm of only if things are closed, are these available? Okay. Um, and you were, when you were talking about, I love, I also really clued in on de-armored and I was thinking, ah, oh, like taking off your mask, but mm. of a different level, like masking reminds me of like personality or like. I like to stim to make myself feel comfortable stamping my feet on the floor, like dancing to music before a TV show starts, those things center me. And so there's a, I could mask those, but like thinking on a different level of that, thinking about armor, like I was getting present to as a fat person, how I have to prepare for a doctor's appointment mm -hmm. or accessing the system in any way. I actually jokingly, but not jokingly, like funny, not funny. All I can do is laugh. That's all I have actually. So I laugh um, that I have to armor myself as if I'm some sort of consultant for my own medical care mm. without getting paid. Right. I have to like pay my dues of this effort of this labor to access the system and even be considered in a way similar to someone in a thinner body or mm. is just not viewed the same by our systems. Um, and I was just really getting present to that. Like, Aside from my current therapist, which is a privilege to have one who matches me so well, our affect, the way she supports me in a trauma-informed way, um, that it's a privilege that I don't have to be armored all the time with yeah. everyone. So now I have mm -hmm. one person I don't have to be with. And it's very, I'm just suddenly very aware of how much I have to armor myself everywhere else mm -hmm. still. Um, and it's something I share with clients and I give them lots of resources and I use the same ones for myself, but it doesn't land the same for me when I talk to me. Like I still have to have the armor mm. um, where I feel like I encourage something different in my clients, more of a liberation approach, more speaking for yourself. And I'm just getting present to that. Um, these clients are also in smaller bodies. It's something that's not lost on mm. me in this moment. Just thinking about, um, you said centered and de-armored. And thinking about that there, I just realized how often I am trying to be centered and I still have armor. Ooh, and no yeah. wonder it feels like a struggle. Mm -hmm. Like, like just thinking about the basics of meditation and groundedness, I have always struggled with that, which uh, also being newly diagnosed with ADHD in the year 2021, I'm like, this explains a lot. And also, what if there's more to it than just that? Mm. Um what if meditation is hard when you have to be armored all the time? Cause it's even an armor about getting grounded, about being wow. present, about being embodied. 
Mm. I'm just really like sitting with these things. Like I'm actually feeling some tension in my body right now. Just mm-hmm. thinking about how real this is for me, what I'm saying and how vulnerable it is that I'm realizing it and sharing it at the same time. Yeah. Um, and it feels really important because I'm going to listen to our podcast. <laughs> and <laughs> Like just right now, it's like, I really can't wait to listen to myself talk about this. And this piece of this conversation very, very specifically, um, and see where this conversation can evolve and transform mm. to um, for myself or for anyone else, because it feels really important to notice these things that are ands, but they're not, it's like dialectics, like holding two truths, but also mm. what if one of them could change? Like I'm actually sitting with that all together. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you for having creating this space because that's a pretty powerful mm. realization mm. I just had just sitting in it. So thank you. Yeah yeah thank you so much it's just like it's just sparked up all this stuff in my in my head um as well and in my body jen so yeah thank you and it makes me think also of like the ways in which we don't want to turn embodiment into another binary or another kind of Mm. place we're striving for Mm. um and also like that piece about meditation and about you know you know, I've shared with you, you know, one of my kiddos um, has Tourette's syndrome and um, other kind of coexisting forms of neurodiversity. And, and I'm really having to sit with and and explore with him, like, the ways in which we, we have a world of privileged stillness and this idea of mm. that groundedness is like the stillness or the absence of something. And, and like the ways in which for him, as he explains it to me, like that's, that's not an experience that he finds resourcing or finds grounding, actually. Like for him, sometimes running up and down a room and touching a certain thing is, is his way of, um, grounding. So like even like mm. touching things, ways of stimming that he does in order to, um, create a certain sensation that is, you know, helping him in some way to feel more kind of, um, yeah, just naming that so much of these concepts like meditation and different things are, can be like a resource and, <laughs> and like not making ourselves wrong if, mm-hmm. if something else is what sort of works for us. I think so many times we have these kind of, checklists of journaling and meditation and whatever you know I even yoga coming back to yoga I say to my clients yoga is not always an embodied form of movement like it's not you know um it can be a way to be with them in our body and it can be really confronting and really um like deregulating is that a word I'm gonna yeah, it is. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, I don't know. I just thank you for naming that. That yeah. Ooh, regulation. That's such. Uh, excuse the expression. A meaty word. <laughs> so meaty. It. It's like you know co-regulation. The three of us here doing this podcast. There's a form mm-hmm. of regulation together when you're talking about in a community. There's a form of regulation together when it talks about being with our or when we think about being with ourselves in different moments, including this one. Also regulating with myself. Like, what do I need? What does your son need? 
Mm-hmm. Um, what do, what helps? What doesn't help? What's workable and effective for you and only you today and only today? I mm-hmm. find that there's this idea, like phrases like just be positive, just go meditate, yeah. okay. just eat your vegetables. Like that doesn't help anyone do anything. No. Well, th- mm-hmm. thank you so much. It's like once you're we're not feeling relaxed when they're like just relax. It's like thank you so much. Oh, everything's all solved of- now. Now I know. No, I didn't know thank- that's all I had yeah. to do. <laughs> it had never occurred to me. I wasn't even. I have never tried it before. Mm-mm. You're right. This is. It's like that magical thinking you were talking about earlier. That when someone yes. someone has been through a process and a practice and has landed at a different place and is also still on a journey that they would look at someone else from that place and say, just come over here where I am. Like it was so easy for them to get there. Yeah. Um, right. Mm-hmm. Even the most privileged of people have pain, trauma, struggle, like things are not automatically easy. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also reminding me of the phrase um, executive function. And I was just thinking even that phrase is also directed at people from how they should function. Mm-hmm. But what if we all just have a different function, including yeah. how we meditate or not? Um, including how we sit with ourselves or not, including how we engage in healthcare or not, like all of these things. Like what if we just all have our own way, which can Mm -hmm. sound like let's have everyone just do their own way with no structure or anything like that. And like also what structure works for people that doesn't feel restrictive. It doesn't feel constricting, like make where they have to make themselves earlier when you were talking about the shower with the half door, I was just thinking of some houses in New Mexico have very, very small doors. Mm-hmm. The people who were first came and already lived in New Mexico were much shorter in stature and smaller in body size. Um, just like walking, having to walk sideways through a doorway and mm-hmm. um, all of these phrases, the just, 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 just phrases, um, which makes me think about magical thinking and fantasy something that you said earlier like how can we all imagine that we can all be like the thin white woman at the end of this kind of thinking um we've talked about what ifs and all of that and i'm just really sitting with i don't know if this is a word either i'll just say micro aggressiveness What I mean is like, it's not just microaggressions. It's like emphasis on the aggressive part of this aggression. Um, That it's like this thoughtless, conditioned place where we microaggress. Again, I don't know if that's a word. um, Perform or do microaggressions is what I'm trying to say. Um, Okay, okay. (laughs) That, That we do that to each other. And that's what comes out in these just phrases. It's something I want to pay attention to because I'm realizing how uh, interested I'm in in these collective thoughts that you're bringing up. Like, what if we were witnessed? What if we had people we related to around us? What if that was the conversation um, where the rest of us get to be not othered, but yet recognizes the rest of us together? That I was really, um, I'm just really sitting with um, how interested I am, as I said, in the collective, and therefore, is that the direction I'm going? Earlier, I was talking about direction, but I'm just realizing I want to make sure that I'm going in the direction of the collective, too. Not just what works for me and my embodiment, but really more in a collective sense, including not doing microaggressions, even though that's what we're conditioned to do. It's often mm-hmm. the first thought, especially as cl- clinicians. Mm-hmm. Just really sitting with that, with my own humanity and the humanity of others in that space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think like, like, 
we're part of the collective. So I think we can pivot between this place of our own healing. We get to include our own healing as part of that. And like, like how do we sort of in, not stop at, at that kind of at our own healing story, which I think is the bit for me that, that really is, is not included in the conversation. We talk about our own personal liberation which which is not to say that's not an important part of this because you know we're a brick in that wall I think it's on your Renee Taylor that talks about the wall and, and the bricks maybe I'm misremembering that um and also like Sonia Renee talks about um the ladder and like not it not being about us accepting our place on the ladder or getting more comfortable with our place on the ladder so that's that piece of like maybe it's possible for me with my privileges to to do enough work to get comfortable mm. with my place on the ladder. But actually, what would it be to step off of it and, you know, and join in this piece of world and, and move towards something else, like build something different? Mm-hmm. Um, so that place of dismantling the ladder versus like getting more comfortable yes. of our place on it. So, yeah, thank you for naming that. I think that's... Ooh, yeah. Dismantling yeah. the ladder instead of finding being comfortable with our place on it. Oh, I love that. I love all kinds of ideas around dismantling. So I just, I love that. Yeah, idea. yeah absolutely. Me too. And that is Sonia <laughs> Renee Taylor. Yes. <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. There's no credit to be there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Can I go ahead and say something really quickly? So Jen and I have talked a lot about repairing in the moment as things happen during uh, these podcast interviews, and I wanted to repair it. I don't even know if you noticed it, but I wanted to apologize for laughing when you said, when you talked about your trip and not being able to fit in the shower and things like that. And I didn't want you to think that I was laughing at your experience. If anything, I was laughing in commiseration because I've definitely been there. I didn't want you to feel like I was laughing at your expense is all I just wanted to just repair in the moment. I think like you said, Jen, sometimes laughter is the only thing I have. And I didn't mean to make you feel any type of way, or even if you didn't hear it, I still feel really bad about that. I've had that experience. I probably will have that experience as I'm traveling next week. So I just wanted to repair that in the moment. So I apologize for that. No, thank you, Siobhan. And I totally got from your whole embodiment that you were like, like sympathize, not sympathizing, yeah. but empathizing with yeah. me. Uh, okay. But yeah, thank you okay. for checking in anyway. Yeah. I love that modeling, repairing in the moment. Yeah, definitely. It's important to us in this podcast. It is. And we're also leaving reflective time um, at the end of a season and the beginning of a new one that we consider these things that we've said or have not said and what we'd like to do about them and incorporate so that either they don't happen again or that there is an awareness of transparency so that Mm -hmm. it has the potential to have less harm. Yeah. It was important. Absolutely. Yeah. As we're talking about this, um, I was just sitting with two things that I already wanted to ask, one of which we've already answered. Um, So what's left um, that I wanted to make sure that I asked is in your practice of body stories as part of body trust and also what I know is important to you, um, investigating and exploring your body story and those of your clients. I I wanted to ask if there is a connection between that and things that come up as intersections of body justice and fat liberation. And what I mean by that is um, having not explored our body stories from the past. I don't know if they have a present and future element, but I know of the past. Um, 
if that's what comes up, are these intersections with body justice and fat liberation? Like, is that the potential of what we can uncover through them? Or is there something else? Ooh, I'm not sure I'm 100% getting your question, but I'm going to um, have a go at it. And then if, if you can let me know if, if there's somewhere else you want me to wiggle towards. Um, yes. <laughs> Ooh, I like wiggle. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I need to start using that word more. That just made me happy inside. Yeah, no, let's wiggle there. So, like, for me, body stories are lots of different things. It's not like one exercise, you know, like in the, I don't know, sometimes people think of body stories like, um, like a timeline or something. Um, you know, and that can be one entry point into exploring, like, our relationship with our body or our story. But there are lots of ways to look at it. Um, and I think, like, for me, like it starts with what is my lived experience has been in my body what is each person's been so of course in there there's going to be different intersections because our lives are intersectional so like you know I'm going to use me as an example because <laughs> that feels like I'm not bringing in any of my clients um but when I think of my body story you know in there there is you know um being growing up in the troubles in Ireland and what did you know, crossing the border to visit my granny and having like checkpoints and 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 a, a very much a hostile police presence um, and a sense of not safeness in my body. You know, like how's that part of my body story? And also, mm-hmm. how does you know growing up in that context as an Irish person living in Northern Ireland, where I was taught to like who was I in relation to the others there, which were, you know, British colonizers as well. And and where's my relationship? But that's all part of my body story. My fatness is part of my body story. Um, like the ways in which um, that identity has impacted my experience of the world, the ways in which me being uh, someone that was assigned female at birth has impacted my experience in the world. So intersecting with body justice and and choice and yeah reproductive rights and how that intersects with my experience as someone who's raised to be catholic and how did that impact my sense of body shame or my sense of agency of my body um how did um me moving over to england impacted in my experiences of you know mental health challenges and my neurodiversity and having a baby and all so really it's kind of like what have been my lived experiences my body what stands out and like where has that enhanced and disrupted my um, experience of embodiment you know so and from there the threads can unravel so I think that for me the intersections are there and then also I think that for me as someone who perhaps the main barrier I think at the moment is my fatness Mm. it varies at different times actually but you know, I think that there is a lot to be said for organizing around a specific um, experience and then also being in coalition with other movements as well. So, like, for me, there's this intrapersonal journey, you know, where I'm looking at all these intersections and then there's kind of um, not stopping at my own experience and then being in coalition with other movements and and in community with other movements and, and learning from and taking that back. And so the whole thing is interlinked for me. I'm 
did that answer your question or were you looking to wiggle somewhere else with it? That was wonderful. My brain exited halfway through my question and so I kept going anyway. But you somehow still got exactly what I was saying. So that's wonderful. No, that was exactly um I was just I was thinking about um how body stories are and I wanted to hear from you, which I just did, that they're not static, that they're dynamic. Yeah. Like a timeline mm-hmm. it feels so static to me. And yes, that can be a tool, but it's more like what are this is something I say all the time. So sorry people listening to the podcast, you're gonna hear me say this over and over and over and over. Like versions of us from the past all live within us. Mm. So I love that you phrase yeah, that. What's here now? Yeah, lived experiences, a compilation. I almost heard that as like a Rolodex, a compilation, um, a drawer, like a place where we can go visit, like body stories, a place to go visit ourselves. Mm. Not just the self of now, but all the other selves. And even in this like what if imagining space, I could see how um, this experience, I often think of how we accidentally misfile past and future things into the present drawer. We're like, this is happening now, but it really happened somewhere else. Mm. And I was just hearing Mm. you talk and I was actually having this visual of filing things in the past drawer, in the present drawer, in the future drawer, like that, um, actually having these conversations with all the versions of ourselves keeps things in a space where they can play with each other not just fighting with each other or competing or some kind of thought like that. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, I love the filing thing. And for yeah. me also, like the way I described it perhaps there is like a little bit in that kind of catalog place. But mm-hmm. I think like another part of this is like that place of, okay, what, what's here right now? And we can almost look at where that shape made sense where that embodiment that I'm going into habitually in this moment where that mm. made sense in my body stories and I think when we talk, when we name our stories more from a place of being the author rather than the place of this happened to me mm-hmm. it creates that space to kind of take it out and look at it and and muddy it and say is this true was this true yeah um, do I want to like burn that contract if you like that I somehow mm-hmm. entered into at some point mm-hmm. and I think it's the space of like not making old versions of ourselves wrong or old versions of ourselves you know what I mean the ways mm-hmm. in which we coped in the past or what we did to survive or what was the best that we had to do not making that wrong but being able to look at it from a different perspective and from there it can create more choice in the present moment to to kind of lessen the attachment to that because I think that so many times that old embodiment that old shape that we're inhabiting that shame story or whatever it is can show up now and because it's become habitual in the culture that we live in and so for me body stories yes they're a lot about looking back but they're also about like what's here right now um and why does that where does how does that make sense given my lived experiences and you know you talked about the future like what's the what if I was going to try and practice in this moment and how can I increase my capacity for that it's like for me stories are an embodied experience um they're not always we can tell them in a way that feels like very not but I think that if we can be embodied we can pay attention to what's the new story that wants to be Mm. said Oh, oh, that's good. That's really, really good. <laughs> I, 
what I wanted to say. I just wanted to say that was really good. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm just sitting with the story that wants to be said. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And the idea of a story not being static, that's really sitting with me. And something you said earlier um, about what aspect of your identity is most prevalent right now. Like maybe it's this right now, but, you know, at another time it might be this. Like maybe it's about, you know, personally, it's about my what's prevalent is my body size and another day might be my blackness like it's just like it's all of the moving parts and not having to make it this very static thing with this is my story this is what it is and this is what I live with I I just really love that I really love really love that idea yeah just realizing how many past versions of me said things like I'm just loud without having an understanding Mm. of what that means for me or like just mm-hmm. earlier I was like reflecting and people are like, just do this. And I'm realizing that I can be vulnerable to saying that to myself too. It's the same conditioning. Mm-hmm. Like I'm yeah, just laughing. Or I'm just honest, but also maybe I was being cruel. Like there's really mm-hmm. time to look at that. Like that's, mm, I'm going to sit with that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. uh, we do so much justing and shitting on ourselves. And mm-hmm. like, I can also just thinking like how many times I say that's just my personality or and I'm yeah. just curious about what's personality and what's been a trauma response and what's Oof. been a way of coping and all of that, you know, like I'm picking it but also not making myself wrong for being where I am right now. Yes. I think. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Giving yourself permission to acknowledge that this was a trauma response but also not using it as a a reason or an excuse for some behavior that might have been harmful to yourself or to other people yeah yeah Ooh, that's good. yeah yeah wow Oof. Mm. yeah no i want to dance about that a little bit <laughs> i had to dance for a minute okay <laughs> there's lots of dancing on this podcast can you describe how trusting our bodies is the opposite of the search for a cure or purification, which is really a violent part of our collective world culture? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I'm, I think, I think about, like, and again, coming back to my experiences of both, I guess, chronic illness and also fatness, like the idea of the cure for being fat. Um you know the and the compli- complications I don't know like the complexity is the word I'm looking for of like chronic illness and this idea of body trust or the idea of um, feeling at home in our bodies and how how can we explore that not from a perspective of um locating the problem within our body so I think like sometimes when we talk about magical thinking or hope or all the ways in which we cope with um, being in a body that we hope is temporary um like how that in itself can be an act of violence against ourselves and I don't want to minimize the very real experience that navigating chronic illness in an ableist culture you know um the high ideas around body trust might not feel accessible to everyone so i think there's something of me of how can we work with with what's here not in a way of what am i trying to say not in a way that feels like 
apathy or feels like um, stuckness, but also not in a way that outsources our living to some point in the future. So it's really like where can we kind of locate the problem outside of us to a culture, to medical industrial complex, to systems of oppression, you know, and and locate ourselves within our body in a way that feels resourceful to us within that. So sometimes that might feel like numbing and distracting and self-preservation, mm-hmm. and that's okay. But I think, I don't know, it's it's something I'm open to exploring, but definitely how the idea of a cure can be both hopeful but also can can really disconnect us from the present moment and Mm. maybe that makes sense sometimes but where does it perhaps position position us separate from ourselves and how can we kind of play with that and and locate the problem outside of ourselves but I think it's something I'm playing with at the moment and making sense of my own chronic illness and how like ideas like joyful movement aren't always Mm. accessible to me but also like where is there still room for joy at times and 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 if I'm living too much in the hope of something different like where does that maybe where do I miss out in something here yeah. My goodness, Nikki, this is. <laughs> I, am, I am like. It doesn't make any sense. It do, no, no, oh, no, no, no. It, it absolutely does. does. Sorry. That, that was. Let me, let me explain myself. <laughs> so, this. Um, first of all, it's having me sit with the next question already in this context, which makes me really want to ask it in this context, mm-hmm. actually. And there is a a lack of permanence in what you're saying that reminds me of radical acceptance, like of each moment or as close as we can get to that for ourselves, um, of being in the now and allowing for the future, but not just fast forwarding to the future. Um, and trying, uh, you know, uh, thinking about the what ifs we were talking about earlier really seemed to open space. And I can't even remember who started saying this. I'm pretty sure I saw this on Instagram. I will try to find the original person that I saw this from, but someone who talked about affirmations versus affirmations that an affirmation is like, I like, I am a goddess. I am an all knowing being like these sorts of like fantasy kind of thinking is what affirmations with an A tends to be like, like to affirm a reality that doesn't yet exist, but does not necessarily consider if it's possible for us. And I don't mean um, that people should keep themselves from thinking about even what feels maybe beyond the realm of possibility, Um, but more that it's like a glossing over of things that requires some, some depth that's um, might be missing, not requires, but it might be helpful to have more depth and a way in which I consider that depth is affirmations, which are just what if statements. Um, affirmations tend to be like, what if I can or am or something, something else? Like, for example, um, what if I can be pr- as proud of myself as my therapist? Is something I use as a what if statement for myself all the time. Mm. Um, what if I can see myself the way my partner sees me? Even if only for a moment. That... 
the grandness of affirmations and also that they center like manifesting and other things that are really actually about privilege that gives an opportunity for moments like the word breath is almost coming to mind like in the space of a breath that i might be able to have a moment of joy maybe my personal revolution that that's what i have access to yeah um versus like being positive all the time or mm -hmm. which could just be a mask like like something that feels more related to me and it's making me think of the word reclaim mm. um i was thinking about that while you were talking especially the word fatness or I am fat, mm -hmm. um, and how that can be healing and how that can be a reminder even to myself that my lived experience is valid right now and the other lived experiences and these body stories and also that I get to determine things for myself. I don't just have to show up and meet a definition or a distinction. Like I get to determine these things. Um, and something you and I have talked about before, Nikki, and I was just, I've been thinking of is that the word reclaim can also feel static or like we're in a new cycle that we didn't mean to be in. Like it's sometimes a trap. Mm. Um, just like thinking about manifestation and words like that and privilege that kind of get thrown around that if we're not, if we don't have the accessibility or the ability within ourselves to do something, it can feel like reclaiming something can also be a trap, or at least that's how I'm thinking about it. I'm wondering how that sits for you. Yeah, I think like, <clears throat> kind of like resilience, like reclaim a reclamation. I have different relationships with it that sometimes can feel positive other friends cannot and I think it's okay to like have both have that polarity exist I think like for me like reclamation like can be resourcing for me when I can think of it as like naming what's my birthright naming you know like where I agency is something like I am sovereign you know for example like I'm always sovereign I mean, like that can feel important to name and where I think it can feel sticky for me and I'm still kind of navigating is where it sometimes can imply that we've got to get back to something or that or that we're almost erasing what's happened in between. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that... And it's like the word healing, isn't it? Or recovery or any of these things. I think, mm -hmm. and the relationship with hope. I think that um, they can be really resourcing when it feels like it's, it's, it's helping us with an action towards from where we are, but it can feel like not helpful when it's, when it feels like we've got to get to somewhere in order to start to live or to start to kind of, so yeah, it's like a, it's it's not um it's a both and you know for me it's a both and and I think like also this piece of imagination for me like I'm really and it's something I'm really starting to lean into now and something I'm a project I'm working on around radical reimagination and I'm really baby stepping my way into other spaces that are using these practices um so any way that I <laughs> that I um explain it that is perhaps missing stuff is all on me is what I'm gonna, is what I want to say there but when I think of the power of fantasy and I think of like Octavia Butler's work and I think of um 
places where we can imagine and play and imagine not because we're trying to create that, but imagine because it takes the stuff to our brain and it it can really be resourcing in that place. And I think like that what I want to be intentional about is not then sort of trying to bring that all in, but it's kind of like where is the possibility in that for something different? Because I think what that does mm. is it takes us away from the problem as the location of acting away from the problem it can almost be a place to if we can find spaces to imagine the what ifs and the and the and the fantasy in a place where um it's not in a world where we've changed or we've been fixed or we're cured but a world where it's different and it meets us fully as we are in that what if that and if I can bring a tiny bit of that and think, okay, like what's possible for me now here? Like what's here? Like you said, um, like what's my own, in my context, mm. tiny thing that shifted in me and what what's that story that I want to try and move towards that's it's connected but it's not like the same. I don't know if that makes sense. But I'm really playing with like what is we often demonize like magical thinking and fantasy and I certainly have been there. And what I'm playing with is like the magical thinking that feels like I've got to be different effects mm. versus what's what's the resourcing in reminding myself that um that this is somebody's framing, this is some lens of you know, of worldview or whatever that we're living in and that actually there could be something different. And I think there's mm. I don't know, there's something there um, that I'm learning from others about at the moment yeah so kind of a global i'm sorry it's more of a global magical thinking than an individual magical thinking it sounds like maybe correct me if i'm wrong (laughs) yeah well i don't i think it's that thing of like um i think we really have a crisis of imagination don't we because Mm -hmm. it's hard (laughs) to imagine something different because it's always within reference to to what's wrong mm-hmm. um and we get imagination conditioned out of us you know i think of my yeah. kids and like the stuff they come up with yeah <laughs> just like <laughs> wow and remembering i had that whereas now yeah. almost immediately there's oh but that wouldn't work because of x y and z or mm-hmm. because of this you know so allowing mm-hmm. ourselves to imagine for the sake of imagining rather than because mm-hmm. we then have to it's not our job to create that in the current mm-hmm. world but because it opens up something within us that it's like a tiny shift yeah Mm. 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 (laughs) Mm. Uh, Nikki there was a podcast episode on the needy podcast um and there's a quote that you said that really has stuck with me since then I texted people about it I've been talking about it kind of nonstop since then um but the quote is perfectionism is buying into a system that benefits from my shame I love that I I find that so powerful and so so helpful in a lot of different ways so I wanted to ask you how do you recognize when perfectionism is affecting you how do you recommend that someone practices self-care because I think there's so much perfectionism around self-care so how do you practice it in a way that isn't focused on what's quote right unquote or what's perfect yeah and I think like I want to give credit for that quote I mean I think I've put together two different things that I've been sitting with 
yeah. I think like Sonia to to name Sonia Renee Taylor again, who's like such an awesome teacher. Um, she talks about um not buying into systems of oppression mm-hmm. um that benefit from our shame. And I think like for me there was a big recognition when I was able to identify perfectionism as one of the, the sort of hallmarks of white supremacy culture. Mm. Um you know, as in a lot of the teacher a lot of the great teachers that I've had, you know, being able to name that and going, Oh, perfectionism is part of that. And when I'm you know, in that place of perfectionism, then I'm buying into, you know, that system of oppression that benefits from my shame. Yeah. And I think how do I recognise, oh my gosh, perfectionism, you know, I don't know that I always recognise it. Um <laughs> but I think that it, for me, I, I notice that if I'm in a place where it feels like I'm striving or grasping or I'm making myself wrong or I'm trying to follow some kind of rules. So it feels like a very binary place to be in. Like there's something mm. that I'm trying to get to. And it feels in my body like a very inflexible place. It mm. doesn't feel um, expansive and like space for me to pause or to rest or to try something different or to be curious I think when, when I'm in a place of perfectionism then I'm I'm, I'm not curious <laughs> I'm not compassionate with myself I'm I have not I'm often a little bit um like stuck and grasping and frustrated so I think like how I notice it is like from that place of checking in with my body and being like, ah, like what's here, like right now, I notice that I'm feeling like there's somewhere I something that I'm doing wrong, there's something that's missing, or I'm somehow not enough here. Like, what's that about? So like paying attention to what's here and like naming it. <laughs> and then um I guess trying to resource myself and slip of something different, you know, from a more grounded place, from a more centered place, and acting from there. And it's certainly a practice because, I don't know, perfectionism just seems to pop up. In that same podcast, I remember Mara Glatzel talking about it being like whack-a-mole. I do feel like perfectionism yeah. whack-a-mole is like <laughs> in my life, for sure. But yeah, I try and notice it, um, name it, and then grind myself in a more resourced place. So that's in a place that is more compassionate, more resourceful, more curious. Yeah, I try and move from there, you know, as much as I can. Mm-hmm. I love those idea- that idea of, I use the word indicators a lot in the work that I do. So like those indicators, if I'm feeling like I'm grasping or I can't be compassionate to myself, that can be a really good signal. I like the word signal too. <laughs> that, I'm, that perfectionism is popping up its whack-a-mole head. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Mm. Like a, indicators, yeah. yeah, yeah. I use that one a lot. Um, yeah, <laughs> like a like a sacred message that feels like we should be listening to it, and even if that's hard, or even if we first feel like we shouldn't do that, pay attention. Yeah. To it. it's mm-hmm. so inconvenient. Yeah, yeah. But also, <laughs> it's, it's yes, it's it's another way that we disconnect. Do you know where mm-hmm. we're, we're our like our sense felt sensation is telling us something different and we're like no 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 this is we're gonna override that and we're gonna move mm-hmm. to here because you know what where we're at's not not okay or it's not good enough or we need to be somewhere else yeah 
So thank you for being with us today, Nikki. We've talked about a lot of systemic and interpersonal things in this chat we've had with each other. Um, what do you think we can all do listening, Siobhan and I here, to make a difference from what we've talked about today? Mm. It's not I a big question or anything, no big it's deal. Not a big <laughs> <question>. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for naming that. I think maybe there's a couple of, I don't know, starting places, depending. Um, and I think first to name that I'm not in any way a teacher or expert in any of this stuff. And, I, you know, I'm practicing it here alongside. So there's lots of awesome people that I would recommend checking out that we've talked about. Um, so I think there's a piece of this is maybe playing with, with your body story. Like, what have your lived experiences been in your body you know, how has your body just as it has helped you to survive? Where did you first learn that your body was a problem? And we're talking about the body there like mm -hmm. an object almost, but that's because that's the culture we live in. So it's mm -hmm. like, when did that rupture happen? Or where did it make sense of this? Maybe getting curious about that from a place of not pathologizing or making it wrong, from that space of... um locating it outside of ourselves, locating the problem outside of ourselves, you know, mm -hmm. and like putting it where it belongs in like those cultural messages, those societal messages that we get that um that kind of feed into that idea that we're not enough, that we're not okay as we are. Mm -hmm. And then another thing might be to okay, two more things. <laughs> One might be to find spaces where like the rest of us are centered mm. and lifted up and those voices are lifted up rather than the spaces where um, the dominant norm is lifted up. So where can you find spaces both where you can be witnessed and held and also where you can, you know, because you named it, typically heal in relationship with other people, you know, mm. those communities where we can validate our the wisdom and the ways that work and what's helped us and what supports us. I think find those places, look out for those people, listen mm. to those people. Um, there's so many amazing teachers out there, including Sonia Renee Taylor, <laughs> I yeah. want to say, like has a Patreon and the body's not an apology, but lots of other folks. Mm. And then the third piece I want to add is um, like maybe practicing a little bit of a, centering like what would that if that feels accessible to you like mm. when is the moment when you felt a real sense of aliveness and connection and and I don't know I don't want to say at homeness because that's not always accessible but for me it's a sense of aliveness mm. and connection in your you know in your body that you had that at oneness like and can you kind of just practice bringing that memory to mind, feeling the sensations in your body and kind of grinding into that. And I know that that could be a big ask and we might sometimes feel like we've got to titrate our way there. Mm -hmm. um, but like kind of playing around with like, what's your version of what if that might be wanting to be heard at the moment and knowing that that's going to change and shift and evolve but it's not like one story we're trying to live towards. Those would be mm -hmm. my Three things. That's cheating, I know, but... No, that was great. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. I would agree with all of that, except when you said that you're not a teacher. You absolutely have taught me so much, and it's been such a such an honor and such a gift to learn from you today. And 
other times that I've, you know, learned from you. So thank you. <laughs> no, thank you, Siobhan. Yeah, I've learned so much just chatting to you too as well. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for being here with us. As we close out today, what would you like everyone listening to know about what you're up to and how they can find you? Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this chat and all the places we wiggled into together. <laughs> um, um, I guess what am I up to? <laughs> I'm not the most visible person online. I'm going to be real there, but you can find me on Instagram at Nicola Haggett. Um, probably the best place to find out what I'm up to is signing up to my newsletter on my website. My quite sporadic, but I do set so stuff good. out when I'm up to stuff. I think it's great. It's so good. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very sporadic. But I am at the moment working on some a few things. Um, I'm going to be doing some in-person um, exploring body trust groups in London. So for anyone from London that's coming up, I'm hoping for one of those groups to be fat exclusive. Um, something I'd really love. I'm hoping to be joining with some folks in some unlearning circles, some other professionals where we can be in the unlearning together rather than a, um, a kind of some more of a peer facilitation. And the third thing is I'm hoping to do a, um, rewriting your body story, um, expressive writing, like a little e-course thing with the option of being witnessed in groups. So those are three things I've got in the works, but I want to do that. <laughs> probably my newsletter is the best place. <laughs> okay. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the learning marathon that you're a part of? Jen told me that you're doing something called that. <laughs> if you want. Yeah. If you want. <laughs> yeah, it's something I'm really like just oh at the beginning of now. So I wanted to really journey with this question of how do I embody body liberation mm -hmm. um with some other folks that are working towards collective liberation in different spaces and I really wanted it to be a UK um experience um so I can really connect in into other movements that are rooted over here as well as all the amazing discussions I have with folks in the US. Um so the yeah, my learning marathon is a peer led learning journey. Um where we're all journeying with a question that relates to radically reimagining change. Mm. And in a way that we're kind of practicing our way there in a very embodied sense of figuring out, like, what are the ways in which I embody this? Like, in my life, personally, in my business, and, and also, like, with other people, and who, what are some other ways I might want to lean into? So I'm very much at the beginning of that and I'll be finished it at the end of this year something oh, wow. is going to come out of it which is not going to be a kind of here's how we embody body liberation because that would not come from me but maybe with some entry points for exploration based on hey here's some of the places where I have I'm going to use the wiggle too because that seems to be coming up here's some of the places I'm with and at and here's some of the teachers I've had and here's some of the practices mm. that have helped me and I've learned from other people. So kind of as like a, a free resource um, that other people can take and pick up and run with in their own way. Okay? So that's in uh -huh. the really early stages, but that's something I'm doing. Uh, so can exciting. we? 
Yeah, cannot wait, cannot wait. And then Jin told me that you are thinking about starting a podcast of your own. Is that true? <laughs> or what about it? Tell me all the things. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I would love to. I think, um, yeah, that might not happen. I don't know. <laughs> I think, like, I don't want to center my voice in it, but I also want to, I want to maybe have a podcast which is more about practicing body liberation and like chatting to other folks that are practicing their way towards mm-hmm. something different and how can we um collectively practice our way there um yeah so there might be a podcast I'm just trying to figure out like um yeah what that might look like rather than it be about me talking about how I'm practicing how can um how can we have like a shared discussion about it so you guys you folks are already doing that so you're so maybe, maybe i could just listen to your podcast <laughs> i would love to listen to your podcast <laughs> oh um i'm gonna hold space for that i'm just gonna yeah. hold it I'm just yeah. holding it for you mm, I love um, it. <laughs> thank you makes for sharing can't stop saying it in my head. It makes me so happy. Sorry, go ahead. I'm going to take that with me too. I'm really uh, interested yeah. in wiggling. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I can't believe you were here with us. I yeah. am so excited. I got so much out of this. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel a lot like percolating up that yes. I'm going to keep sitting with. Um, and I think people are going to get so very much oh. out of listening to... Um, your really compassionate centered wisdom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just excited and um, I don't want to end it, but I have to because I it's know. the end. <laughs> just doing <this> forever. <laughs> so I just want to tell you. I'll be back next season. That's all. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> I, uh, for people listening, I'm like raising my arms in the air, yes. like pointing around. She's <laughs> So thank you so much for being with you. We're so excited. Oh, being with you? Thank you so much. <laughs> That's exactly the energy I have here at the end. No need uh, to edit. It was so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for bringing so a light. Mm. Thank yeah. you for bringing a lightness to this. A focused look at it. A And a lot of permission to just be with ourselves. Thank you. Yeah, yeah thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you for this too. Yeah. Thank you for listening to season one of the Embodiment for the Rest of Us podcast. Episodes will be published every two weeks wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find the podcast at our website, embodimentfortherestofus.com, and follow us on social media on Twitter at Embodiment Us. And on Instagram at Embodiment for the Rest of Us. We look forward to being with you again next time in conversation. Bye.